would encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and turn in it to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, and today we're going to be reading together verses 15 through 20. Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 20, as we continue on in the Gospel according to Luke. Now, normally, I, I don't, I'm, I'm not one of those uh, preachers who makes a lot of um, translational notes, uh, often working with the Greek. Uh, I will confess to you, I'm not good enough with Greek to do that. That uh, would be, uh, and my pronunciation of Greek is, is even worse than it was in seminary. It wasn't particularly good there either. Um, but I do want to make a note about one verse uh, in the verses that we're about to read that is very important. Um, and specifically, it's in verse 18, if you've already got the text open before you. And specifically, the word there is preached. And with many other exhortations, he preached to the people. The actual Greek in the text uh, is euangelizato ton leon. Now, the, work, uh, the word there, euangelizato, comes from the word euangelion, which means good news or gospel. Yeah. Uh, and that's important because it means that in this uh, verse, at least, the uh, ESV and the NIV translations of the Greek are superior. The ESV, for instance, reads, so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. So just before we get to the, uh, to the reading of these verses, keep in mind, John wasn't just preaching, which in the Greek is caruso. He was euangelizato, preaching the gospel, the good news that is of Jesus Christ, specifically preaching that well, let's um, now turn to the Lord and ask him to bless the reading of his word. God, our gracious Father, as we come once again to your word, we pray that you would be the light of our minds and that you would help us to understand it. Help me to divide it aright, Lord. Let me not go astray. Oh, Lord, I do pray that you would cause your gospel message to get through to your people. I may be able to reach their ears. I hope I will. But, Lord, I know only you can reach their hearts, and I pray you would do that. Oh, Lord, be with us today. Concentrate our energies upon the hearing of the gospel message this day. And we pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Luke chapter 3 and verses 15 through 20. I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. Now, as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water. But one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And with many other exhortations he preached to the people, but Herod, the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this, above all, that he shut John up in prison. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Well, friends, today um, most Americans would not recognize the name Father Divine, but he was quite uh, famous many years ago during the Depression. Uh, Father Divine was born George Baker in Rockville, Maryland. He was the son of freed slaves. He was born in 1876. And uh, George Baker worked as a gardener for many years till coming into contact with what was called at the time New Thought, the New Thought Movement, uh, which he bumped into in roughly 1906. New Thought 
uh, is very similar to Christian science. It teaches, amongst other things, that illness is a result of the lack of positive thinking. Are you sick? Oh, your mind's not right. You only think you're sick, and therefore you are sick. Um, well, unfortunately, George Baker became a preacher, uh, and he fell under the influence of a man named Samuel Morris. Uh, Morris's standard method of operation was to go to various churches with empty pulpits, and he would claim to be a preacher, and he would preach a fairly uncontroversial sermon till the very end when he would raise his hands, and I'm not kidding you about this, shout, I am the Eternal Father. Uh, nobody, thankfully, fell for this routine until George Baker heard him, and he became his first follower, calling himself after that the messenger with Morris as Father Jehovah. I'm not kidding. Uh, eventually, Baker had a falling out with Morris uh, as um, what happened was Baker began to claim that he was God, and of course, you can't have two gods. So uh, at some point, Baker then began to call himself Father Divine, and openly claimed to be God, and remarkably he managed to gather quite a following to his cult called the International Peace Mission Movement. He managed also to, to weather a series of scandals in his life. Eventually, he died in a mansion in Pennsylvania, this great Gothic mansion that was given to him by one of his followers. Now, while you may not have, no, um, have recognize perhaps the name of Father Divine, you will probably recognize the name of one of his followers who attempted to take over the International Peace Mission in 1972. That man's name was Jim Jones. He claimed to be the reincarnation of Father Divine, saying that on the death of Father Divine, his divine spirit entered his body. And given Jones's subsequent history, you know, his own claims to divinity and the catastrophic death of his followers and a mass, mass suicide in uh, Jonestown, Guyana, it is impossible, entirely possible that a spirit did enter him, but it was probably the same kind of spirit that Jesus frequently cast out during his earthly ministry. So, George Baker and Morris and Jones, they are all examples of one of the great temptations that comes to men in the church and women in the church as well. And that is an affliction where people who are supposed to be either following God or standing perhaps as messengers of God instead assume the titles, the powers, the prerogative, and the glory that belong to God alone. They claim that they are literally either God the Father or the Messiah. Now, this is not something that just afflicts ministers, but in, it afflicts churches and denominations. They have done it. Well, what do I mean by that? Ministers, as you know, they're called to be faithful stewards of the word of God. It's entrusted into their hands, and they are supposed to deliver it to God's people with as much care and attention as they possibly can, doing what Paul calls unfolding for them the whole counsel of God on a regular basis. But there are many who, instead of being uh, servants of the kingdom of God and servants of the true King Jesus, they take those powers that have been conferred upon them and they twist them. Now, the powers of a pastor like myself, they're purely ministerial and declarative. The only power I have is the power to declare to you like an ambassador coming uh, in the name of a king to tell you what he says. 
uh, and to then tell you, for instance, if you are going astray, if you are breaking his commandments, that uh, you ought to be doing such and such, but it must be in keeping only with what he has said. All of the power that the church has is entirely delegated. You remember before Jesus ascended into heaven, he said to the disciples, all power on he- in heaven and earth has been given unto me. And then he sent them into the world in Matthew 28 to teach all those things that he had taught them. Not to come up with new stuff themselves. Uh, but what many ministers do instead of that is they, they try to seize the throne for themselves and rule the people of God as if they were the king and tell them what they believe. And they become, uh, instead of good messengers, they become tyrants in the kingdom of God. Instead of pointing them to Jesus as the true king and the only redeemer, what happens is they glorify themselves, they puff themselves up, and instead of gathering followers to him, what they do is they gather followers to themselves. And instead of simply declaring what Christ has given in his word, and acting as faithful ambassadors who will declare the will of the king, what those, those messengers do is they make things up themselves. They push aside the commandments of God and the simple preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments, and they create their own laws, their own ceremonies, their own rituals, and a host of other baggage that appeals to their fallen senses and their desire for earthly glory. We have seen so many examples of that. Uh, in the history of the church. Uh, Perhaps the the largest continuing example of that, uh, sadly, is the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, The Pope is declared to be the head of the church on earth, literally the vicar of Christ on earth, a title, the head of the church, which is only reserved for Jesus Christ himself. And instead of the commands of Christ, as they are given in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, uh, that the church should go into the world teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you, they grant themselves an authority to create commands of their own. They claim to be speaking in the chair of Peter, ex-cathedra as it is, from the chair, and they make this unbiblical shift thereby from ambassador to sovereign. But the same tendency, unfortunately, has run through the church in non-Catholic circles. I mean, there are obvious examples of that. Charles Taze Russell, the founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses, or Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormons. But it continues on today, and not just in the ones that we would definitely, you know, the movements that we would say, yes, absolutely, that's a cult, like the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses, but unfortunately within evangelicalism now, uh, particularly within the, the charismatic uh, side of the, uh, the Protestant faith, the, the Word of Faith, New Apostolic Reformation, movements in particular. I have heard uh, word of faith teachers like Kenneth Copeland stand up and declare that they are little gods, that they have uh, the same power. They can do, uh, a, a telling people that a uh, born-again man can do everything that Jesus did on the cross, which is an abomination, obviously. But the funny thing is, these men, they stand up and they say, thus saith the Lord, and then they speak something that the Lord never saith, and then they, and when it doesn't come true, their followers continue on after them. It's, it's absurd, but it goes on. There's this cultic mentality that unfortunately people have. They, they, they begin to follow the man instead of the man that the man's supposed to be pointing to. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
But it's been that way since the serpent in the garden tempted Adam and Eve with the idea that they could be more than stewards of God's creation. What did he tell them? He told them in Genesis 3.3 that they could be like God. And if they disobeyed the commandments of God and they ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of God, that evil would not come. They would not die. You can be your own king, says the devil. You can take on the powers that God seeks to keep for himself. You shouldn't accept the authority of God and his commandments. Think for yourself, people. Be free thinkers. Do what you will shall be the whole of the law. That's what the devil tells us. But it's not true. Now, John the Baptist, the reason I point all that out is John the Baptist in these verses that we just read is given that kind of test in the most profoundly tempting way. The people are coming out to him. His ministry is prospering. And what is more, the people who are coming out to him are desperate. And they are desperate for the coming of the Messiah, God's promised instrument. Some are coming for political reasons, others because they sincerely long to see the coming of God's promised Redeemer, who is going to save them from their sins. And in verse 15, we read that they reasoned in their hearts, asking if John, this dynamic preacher, was in fact the Messiah they were looking for. Now imagine the temptation that w that that situation, that scenario, if you will, would have been for lesser men. It would have been, at that point in time, comparatively easy for John to simply have answered, Yes! Yes! It is I! I am the Messiah whom you have been looking for! And everybody would have said, Hosanna! Hallelujah! Glory be to God! But what would he have been doing? He would have been taking the glory of God to himself unrighteously and bringing God's judgment down upon himself in the, in the process. But others had already done that. Many had already risen up proclaiming themselves to be the Messiah. In fact, men after Jesus would claim to be the Messiah. To this very day, there are people rising up within the Jewish community and claiming that they were the Messiah. The, you, if you travel to Israel, you will see, uh, you will see pictures of uh, Menachem... Schneerson, the, uh, the, the great uh, Hasidic Rebbe on light poles when you go to Orthodox neighborhoods. He's still remembered because they're expecting that he will rise from the dead and lead them. I'm not joking. There are so many who are willing to take that glory that belongs only to God and give it to ordinary men. We see it, unfortunately, not just in religion, but in politics, where we're all looking for a messianic figure to fix everything. That, brothers and sisters, is wrong. It's corruption and it comes from rebellion. Now, the men who rose up before Christ and led these, and the men who rose up after Christ and led rebellions, ultimately all they did was bring their followers death and misery. That's all these so called messiahs do when they grab that. But John doesn't do that. What does John do? Well, in verse 16 of the verses before you, we read that he denies that he is, in fact, the Messiah who was to come. What does he say? John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to lose. At loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
He denies that he is the Messiah or the Christos in Greek. He tells the people of the awesome greatness of the true Messiah. And then John says of himself, he isn't even worthy to be the Messiah's lowliest slave. And that's the the meaning of his, I'm not worthy to loose his sandal strap. The lowest slave in the household had the job of bringing the shoes to his master in the morning, putting them on his feet. And then when he came in after walking in the dust and the dirt and getting all of the animal manure on his, on his feet. He was the one who had the job of taking his shoes off and then washing his feet, the lowest position. And he says, I'm not worthy even to do that. Now the contrast here between John and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, I hope you notice this, it, it couldn't be more stark. The hypocrites amongst the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they, they loved to be exalted. They loved it when the people bowed down to them. Jesus says of them in Matthew 26, verses 5 and 7, but all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplace, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi, that is, of course, teacher, teacher. They claimed to be stewards or servants of the kingdom, but in fact, What did they want? They sought to be kings. They sought to lord it over the people. And when the true king came, what did they do? What did these faithless servants do for him? They conspired against him, and they ultimately put him to death. Now, why did they do that? Well, because Jesus, the true Messiah, threatened them. He threatened their false authority. And so they had to destroy him. He exposed them. He showed the people what their hearts were really like. And they hated him for it. I hope that's not the case with you, incidentally. When, when the Lord exposes you and shows the truth of, of your heart, who you are inside, it should bring us to repentance. That's what the gospel does. You do realize that, right? The gospel is like a mirror. We look at it and it shows us the holiness of God. It shows us how far short we fall of that holiness. And it drives us to Christ. When we see how sinful we actually are, that's the signal to repent, not to strike out in anger. And sometimes that's the case, isn't it? I I, I doubt there's anybody here who, when a friend has brought them the truth, has pointed out their sin, hasn't responded in anger at some point. How dare you? We got our Greta Thunberg on, or Thunberg, sorry, in that moment. (laughs) You've ruined my life by telling me these things. It's not true, though. That person, if they're telling you the truth, is helping you. Benjamin Franklin didn't get much right about religion, sadly. But he was right when he said, the sting in an insult is the truth. When somebody tells you something like that. Well, John says that Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. They were false ministers of the king, false ministers of the kingdom. And they should be a negative example to you and to all true Christians. John the Baptist, on the other hand, is a true minister. He's a good and faithful steward, a servant of the Lord. And he should be a positive example to all of us, but in particular to ministers. So what is it that that John, this, this faithful steward of God, does? Let me give you four things that John did that should form a model for all servants of God generally, but as I said, for ministers in particular. The first is that he exalts not himself, but the Lord Jesus Christ. A faithful steward of the king always exalts the king. 
John was a mighty prophet of the Lord, and yet he himself said, he must increase, but I must decrease. And that should be the core philosophy of every Christian. That should be your core philosophy. And it should especially be the core philosophy of every minister. He must increase, I must decrease. All ministers, if they are ministers at all, should be able to say with the Apostle Paul, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. That's 2 Corinthians 4, 5. J.C. Ryle, the faithful evangelical bishop, put it very well when he said, a minister who is really doing us good will make us think more of Jesus every year we live. He will point out the true king and direct his people there. Now, secondly, the true minister, like John the Baptist, remembers the difference between Jesus Christ and even his most faithful, gifted, talented minister. In verse 16 of uh, Luke 3 here, John said, I baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. I, in common with, with all Christian ministers, Ministers of the gospel, I am called to baptize believers and their children. But I'm also called to remember that the baptism I administer is, like John's, a baptism of water. It is an outward sign. It is a seal of the inward sign that only Jesus can effect. What is this baptism, then, of the Holy Spirit and fire that John speaks of? It's the regenerating work that Jesus does when he inwardly renews you. When Christ effectually calls you through the preaching of the gospel, what does he do? He does this amazing, renewing work within you. A work that, uh, although every minister wishes he could, no minister can ever do. And that's why I'm speaking the truth when I say to you, and I say often, I can reach ears, but only Jesus can reach hearts. Some ministers forget that. But you will know this. You, you will have seen it happening probably in your life. If you're a believer for any stretch of time, you will have brought an unbeliever with you to church. I pray that you have at, at some point in your, in your life. And it may be the case, sadly, that you've gone through that experience. I've, I've, it's happened to me. You hear a barn burner of a sermon. Just a, a wonderful presentation of the gospel, something that, that moves you. You're already a Christian, but you're convicted of your sins. And you're, you're thinking, oh, my word, this is what I needed to hear. And I, I know this is what my, my friend whom I brought needs to hear. Surely this will reach them. And then you ask them, what did you think of the sermon? And they're like, oh, it's nice. Every single word bounced off of their heads like BBs off the hull of a battleship. Nothing reached them in a very real spiritual sense. Why? Because they did not have ears to hear. Their heart was stony. None of the word penetrated it. It was like the seed that's thrown on the path. The birds came and ate it and that's it. Friends, unless the Lord does the work of regeneration in someone's heart, they will not hear. They will not believe. He has to break up the stony soil of the heart and expose the soil beneath so that the the seed can take root and produce a harvest. To be saved, Christ must send the Spirit to wash, to regenerate, to cleanse, to set our hearts on fire, to burn away the dross within us and leave that which is good. 
Paul writes of the experience this way in Titus 3, 4. He says, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So to John... This, this faithful steward of the, of the kingdom, it was entrusted, the ministry of the word and the sacrament, but he remembered throughout his ministry that even though Jesus describes him as the mightiest of the Old Testament apostles, uh, he remembered always that he was just an ambassador and that it was Christ who did the work of saving, not him. He was an instrument in the hand of the Savior and the tool does not have a right to claim that it has done anything. The third thing that a faithful minister does, and John does, is he preaches the word. He preaches not his own opinions. He preaches the truth. He does not tickle itching ears. He does not tell people smooth things. He does not tell people who are on their way to a place where the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die. Those are the words of Jesus describing hell. He doesn't tell them pleasant little lies they want to hear. He doesn't tell them they're little gods. He doesn't tell them that they're fine. Who told you you couldn't achieve all your dreams? You know, that's not the way the true minister of God preaches. That will do them no good. And you shouldn't either. Don't lie to your unbelieving friends and relatives. Don't let them go on without you having warned them at least. I mean, think about this. If they were driving their car at night down a road towards a bridge that you knew was washed out, that would plunge them into water and kill them, you would jump into the road, wave your hands and say, stop, wouldn't you? No matter the danger to yourself, you would do whatever. You would throw rocks at the car. Hey, but they're driving towards something far more dangerous than that. It's not just a washed out bridge. They're on their way to a precipice that will land them in hell when they die. We need to warn them or we have their blood on our hands and we don't want that. We love them too much. So John sets the law before the people, but he doesn't leave it at that. He doesn't simply tell them, you're all wretched sinners. Okay, go home. Now, he, he preaches the good news of Jesus Christ to them. He tells them to flee to Christ for salvation. Later on, he'll tell his closest disciples, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, pointing to Jesus. Go to him. You, go to him. He takes those who are burdened, who are heavy laden with sin and suffering, and unlike the Pharisees, he doesn't add to the weight. You remember we read that section from Matthew where Jesus assures us that it, he wants us to take his yoke upon them, on us, but his yoke is light and easy to bear. The Pharisees' yoke was, was heavy, so heavy, in fact, it would sink anybody who was wearing it down to hell. Instead, what does he do? He directs them to the Lamb of God. That's what a faithful minister does. Finally, the fourth thing, John is faithful to the end. He doesn't just begin his ministry well, then decide that he's, the, he's actually God and, and switch his message or get tired of, uh, and it happens so often, get tired of, of you know, swimming upstream and decide, well, if I just turn around and kind of go with the culture and 
you know, what I'll do is I'll be the little fishy who swims up to the other fishies and says, hey, <laughs> you're great. Can I tell you about my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Maybe a little, just a little. And then he gives them a smooth message, and that's that. No, instead, he does all that he can to fulfill what Jesus sent him to do. John's love of Christ and his love of the gospel means that he preaches the truth even when it is likely to be the death of him. Note that. Now, what's the example that Luke gives us of that? Well, everyone in Jerusalem knew how dangerous it was for John to condemn the incestuous and adulterous marriage of Herod to his brother Philip's wife, Herodias. They were... First of all, too closely related. Philip shouldn't have married her. But what had happened is that uh, Herod Antipas had gone to visit his brother Philip. He was married at the time, incidentally. And they'd gone on vacation at his, par uh, at his palace at some point. He and Herodias fell in love. And she ran away with him back to his kingdom. And Herod Antipas got rid of his wife. And they were living in this, this sinful marriage. Everybody knew it was a sinful marriage. The word of God was very clear on that. But the Sadducees and the Pharisees, note this, didn't condemn him. Why? Because they didn't want to lose their heads. They didn't want to get thrown into the dungeon of Macarus themselves. And let's face it, many people would have simply said, love is love. Or other people would have said, John. Now, John, you don't want to condemn their marriage. That will cut off the avenue to reach them for the gospel. Instead, here's what you do, John. You privately let Herod know you disapprove of his life choices, and then you maybe even attend the wedding. Bring a little gift. Maybe, maybe an hors d'oeuvre of locusts and wild honey or something like that. That was the kind of advice that a lot of people would have given him. But it's wrong. What did he do instead? He said, it is not lawful for you to have her. You ought not to be married to this woman. You need to repent and return. It is not the way that a Christian minister to go to, to ignore or not preach again against open and, and public and shocking evil. I think we've forgotten that. One of the reasons why the church is gradually slipping into or going under the wave, slipping into the evil of the culture is because we don't preach against it anymore. Because we're afraid that we'll offend people and then we'll lose our avenue for the gospel, as some have, have put it. Brothers and sisters, it's always been the case that we offend people who are unsaved with the gospel. The gospel is an offense. It was an offense to me for many years. And let me tell you, the thing that as an unbeliever I hated the most was the smarmy approach. Oh, hey, buddy, you know, Jesus adds, you know, it's, it's coming and trying to sell you Jesus as a product. Jesus will make your life better. No, Jesus won't make my life better. I'm enjoying my life pretty much. And if I become a crazy Christian like you, there's a bunch of things first I, I really love to do that I won't be able to do. My party-hearty lifestyle is going to go away. Uh, my sexual sin lifestyle, that's going to go away. <laughs> and also, my friends are going to make fun of me. <laughs> Great deal you're offering me here. What happened was a minister on the radio exposed the truth of my heart. 
What did he say about me? He said, you tell yourself you're good, but you're not. Your heart is full of sin and wickedness. You have sinned against God and against man every day of your life. You're a hypocrite, and you hold back the truth. And do you know what happened at that moment? The door, by God's grace, broke open, and I saw myself for the first time in my entire life, I swear to you, as I truly was. I saw all of the sins that I had committed, all of the ways that I had abused my parents when I was a child, and all of the ways that I had abused everyone around me, abused women, and done all sorts of evil and terrible things. And I knew that there was a holy God, there was a heaven and a hell, and I was not going to heaven. And I had no hope of doing so in my own power. It was only if I repented and I bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and accepted the forgiveness that he was offering me freely that I could be saved. It was the law that caused me to flee to Jesus Christ. Not Jesus adds life, you know, throw him into orbit around you and... Bad, bad CCM music. It wasn't that stuff that, that brought me to Christ. And I find, this has been my experience, in order to truly be converted, you've got to see yourself as you really are. That moment that Peter had when he said, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Have you had that moment when you recognized yourself for who you are by nature? A fallen descendant of Adam with no hope. Save Jesus Christ, the, the winsome Savior, the one who comes to you and, and says, take my yoke upon you. Take off that heavy yoke, the chains of sin that are weighing you down, and instead take up my yoke, for it's light. That is what Jesus instructs his messengers to tell people. And that's what John did. He told them the truth. And that truth divides. It divides between the wheat and the chaff. John was right to say that Jesus had his, his threshing fan in his hand. And the threshing fan, what was it? They would thresh wheat. They would break open the kernels after the harvest. There would be this giant roller pulled by oxen that would go over the wheat and it would break the kernels open. Uh, but you still had the detritus. You had the outer covering, the, the, the dead husk of the kernel. And what they would do then is they would take a winnowing fan if there wasn't a strong breeze and they would go like that and they would produce a, a current of air and the chaff would fly away. And then they would rake it up and what would they do? They would burn it. John warns, he says, there's a day coming when that'll happen within the church, when the chaff will be blown away. And usually it's, you know what does it? Persecution. Persecution is a great winnower within the church. When it costs us nothing, when everybody is like, oh yeah, it's great to be a Christian, civil religion, blah, 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 blah. You know, when there was a great pressure to be a Christian in the 1950s or back when Constantine declared that Christianity was going to be the official religion of the empire, then there was, there was great social pressure to be a Christian. But in times of persecution, when it can cost you your life, or send you to jail, or to a North Korean gulag, or forever consign you to second class or third class status within the society, lose you all of your social credit, that's when it's hard to be a Christian. <laughs> that's when the kernels of wheat, the, the people who really are his followers, that's when they're shown to be what they are.
That's what Jesus does with his winnowing fan. But a day is coming when the final separation will be made. And I pray that everyone who hears me here will be ready for that day. Could be tomorrow. Could be today. I don't know. Could be a thousand years hence. But are you prepared for it is the critical question. Are you the wheat or are you still the chaff? Well, here's how to test whether or not you can be saved. If you're able to do that, there's still hope for you. Okay? If you want to do a second check, you know, is there a pulse? Okay, there's a pulse. <laughs> it may not seem like it, but if you're still alive, brothers and sisters, friends, there's still hope for you. There's still time to repent, but a day comes when the pulse stops, when you aren't able to breathe in and out anymore. And if you've waited to that point, it's too late. And a day comes when the trumpet sounds and Christ descends with a shout with all those who have gone on before. And then it's too late. The age of grace has come to an end. Now is the judgment. Repent now. Believe now. Flee to Christ now while there is yet time. Let's go before him. God, our Father, I pray that everybody hearing me takes these words to heart. Lord, if they don't believe judgment is coming, if they still believe that John was telling tall tales, that Jesus wasn't telling the truth about heaven and hell and the way to get there, I pray, Lord, that you would change them, that you would open their eyes, that you would pierce their stony hearts like you pierced my stony heart, Lord. Broke it up utterly with the plow of your law and then put in the seed of gospel truth. Oh, Lord, please do that work I can't do. I am not God. I am so far from it. I am unworthy of having my own followers. But, oh, Lord Jesus, you are worthy of all glory and honor. Lord, gather them to yourself while there is yet time. We pray this in Jesus' name.